zero, it's good to wear a heavy winter jacket to school. Wait a second, that's a bad example. Because like in middle school and high school, that common sense goes out the window. And so every morning I'm arguing, hey, do you, why are you wearing that spring jacket? We need to wear a winter, okay, uh, bad example. But there are, you know what I'm getting at, common sense things, right? While there's common sense things with life and uncommon sense things, which in the example of this series is things that need to be taught, the very same thing is true about God. There are some things that about God that seem to either make common sense, be common sense or maybe make logical sense, and we're not going to get into a whole bunch of details. I'm going to give you one example in a second of that, but there's also things that maybe either don't seem logical or at first blush don't seem to make sense. Now, here's the thing. Um, In order to fully know God, it's not going to always be a matter of common sense. That in fact, much like Paul wrote in our first lesson for today, our first reading, that the very heart of our salvation is not common sense, that God would do it for us. And there are mu- there's much about God that is uncommon sense, and we need to dig. Why? Well, here, here's a reason why that we would be good to dig into the deeper things of God. That our trust in God will grow when our understanding of God has grown. Let me say that again. Our trust in God in the good times and the bad times, that we stick close to him, Our trust in God, he knows what he's doing, will grow when our understanding of God and who he is and what his priorities are has grown. We're wanting to grow your understanding of God in this series, and mine too. Let me talk about a common sense thing about God, or maybe to say it a different way, something that every culture seems to believe about God, no matter what culture it is or what time this culture existed. And you need to think, I'm not just talking about, you know, those who follow the God of the Bible, but just people's impression of a higher power. The the common sense way to think about God is to think about God as being very big, very powerful, totally in control, can do whatever he wants, and you and I, in contrast, are none of those things. And when it comes to the common sense view of God, it's really not that there's a relationship with God, but it's more that we just coexist. (laughs) And we hope that we don't tick him off too badly. That's the common sense view of God throughout the cultures uh, and the centuries. It's kind of like when Dorothy, Toto, and the gang were on their way to Oz to see the wizard, and he shows up, and I know I'm dating myself with the Wizard of Oz reference. I'm trying to be timely, I know, but anyway. And there's a big green face, and they come in, and they're all scared, and they're walking around with their heads down, and the, the, the lion is on the floor, and, you know, it's just that is how by nature, logically speaking, and without any instruction, every single person views their relationship with God. It's not a relationship. It's coexistence, and hopefully when I die, I catch him on a good day, and I end up on the happy side of eternity. But here's the uncommon sense thing about God. 
that he just doesn't want to coexist. That God wants relationship with people who are so small and so weak and so in the big picture, so insignificant, that, and yet he's found significance in each and every one of us and that he wants a relationship with us. And I, I, don't, I don't get that. It blows my mind. Why? I have nothing to offer him that is not already his. Why, why does he care about me? Well, there's really only one way to answer that, and it's found in the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And I still don't get this kind of love because I don't give it and I haven't seen it from anyone but him. But yet, that is the kind of love that, that, that he's given us, one that cares about people that have nothing to offer. Now, over the years of being a pastor, I've had a chance a number of times to have a front row seat in watching someone who never understood this. They, they just understood the common sense view that we coexist with God and that I, I hope, I hope, I hope that he's okay with me to finally understand that God wants a relationship with them. And what I've seen is this cloud over their life be lifted. And there's this, this brand new life. And does that mean like everything's just, you know, lollipops and gumdrops every day? Absolutely not. But there's a difference. And you know what I lament? I lament myself and too many Christians that I, you know, know or see that, that have forgotten the difference that the uncommon sense view of God's love actually makes. And we get down about things that we don't need to get down about. And we get focused on things we shouldn't get focused on all the time missing that we have a relationship with God. I've won. This is awesome, right? That he cares about me. Over the years, I've also noticed the same people who have come to that realization that God wants a relationship have that relationship um, somewhat damaged, and, and sometimes even turn away from God. And, and most of the time that happens, whether it be in new Christians or longtime Christians, when the realization that God is love doesn't seem to translate into what God is doing in my life, and they begin to doubt God. So like, um, yeah, God is love, and I've been a Christian for two years, and for two years I've been, been working the agape principles of marriage into my marriage, and yet it's exactly the same, it seems like it was, two years ago before I became a Christian. What's up with that? I thought God is working. I thought God is love. Or, or maybe a, it's a, a Christian who has given their finances over to the Lord and prayed about it, or given their, their children and their well-being over to the Lord and really prayed about it. And the truth is, since they've prayed, things seem to have gotten worse than they were before. And, and we begin to, at times, question God, and sometimes people fall away from God altogether. Well, I want to talk about that today because the questions that come up is, if God is love, why are these difficult things happening in my life? If God is love, why are things so challenging for me? And I, I want, to, want to answer those questions today in our message. But it leads me to our first fill-in for today, that this type of thinking, that if God is love, that there would be some 
activity around it, it makes sense. It makes sense that you'd have expectations in a love relationship. Like, the point of today is not going to be just trust God that he is love and you have no proof of it, it's just words. No, it makes sense that you'd have expectations in a a love relationship. It's true with any love relationship. Um, Community service announcement, guys, eyes, Tuesday, Valentine's Day, just saying. And, And I just want you to know about it because this is true that there's expectations in a love relationship. Now, let me just tell you what I know. It doesn't need to be the heart pendant from Jared, okay? (laughs) But spend some time thinking about it because it's not the cost of the gift, it's the thought behind it, right, Kryn? Yeah, I gotta, gotta think about that, okay? So it makes sense that you'd have expectations in a love relationship. Your wife does, you do, we all do in relationships. So it's okay that you have expectations of God or you have thoughts. But what if, what if the problem in how we feel about God sometimes is not that God doesn't love us, it's that we have the wrong expectations? What if the challenge is not something wrong with God's love, but there's something wrong with our expectations? That's what we want to explore today in this second interaction that Jesus has during his ministry of the the four or five that we're going to look at in this series. So last week, uh, Pastor Matt's text, Jesus was 12 years old, and uh, this week we're fast-forwarding, and Jesus is now 30. It's at the beginning of his three-year public ministry All that means is that Jesus spent three years going around traveling and telling people about who he was. And and already at the very beginning of these three years, he had already gained a following. I mean, people were talking about Jesus, and primarily what they were talking about were, did you see this guy who's doing miracles? Did you hear about this guy who's like the best preacher, teacher I've ever, you know, heard before, and his insight is so amazing, and of course Jesus' insight is going to be amazing, right? But there was a buzz around Jesus. Well, not too long into that time frame of his public ministry, he decides to go home, which uh, was a town called Nazareth is where he grew up. And as long as he was in town, his family and friends and, and you know, probably his his buddies from, you know, grade school and things, hey, said, hey, Jesus, do you want to guest preach? And so on the Sabbath day, Jesus was given the opportunity to guest preach. That's kind of where we pick it up in Luke chapter 4. So Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, which was modern equivalent would be church, as was his custom. He stood up to read And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So much like we have readings in church today, that's something that happened 2,000 years ago and even further back. So Jesus unrolled the scroll, found the place where it's written in Isaiah, a prophecy about the coming Savior, about the coming Messiah. And here was the prophecy Isaiah wrote. The Spirit of the Lord will be upon him, or is on me, because he has anointed me the coming Messiah, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he read it, read that section, Isaiah. 
Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, because that's how they preached. They, they preached sitting down instead of standing up. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on Jesus. And he began his sermon by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So his intro was, and it, you, know, you always want an introduction to kind of catch people's attention. His intro was, the, the person Isaiah wrote about and that I just read about, that person is me. And then he continued to speak more about that section and more about, um, you know, about the Lord, stuff that's not recorded for us. Verse 22, when he was done, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Let me summarize what happened here in verse 22, because things are going to change a lot in a couple verses. But here's what happened. Jesus is done preaching, and everyone's heading home for the day. You know, some were going to Perkins eat lunch, and the bloomers went to Chipotle, you know, and, and so people are getting their lunch, and they're talking. They're talking about the sermon from that day. Does that ever happen? You know, I, I've heard it does at times. And, and they're like, wow. I mean, did you hear Jesus' sermon? I mean, I played Little League Baseball with him, and I worked drive through at McDonald's with him. I never knew he could preach like that. I never knew he had such insight. That was an amazing sermon today. And there was a buzz, and all spoke well of him. And at the words that he shared, and then here's what I think happened. The conversation continued with, did you hear how he started it? Yeah, that was kind of weird. He, he read Isaiah's prophecy about the coming Messiah. Did you hear what I heard? Did you hear him say that he is God's son? Did you hear him say that he's the promised Messiah, the promised Savior? Yeah, what did, what did you think about that? And Jesus knew that they were talking. And he sensed what was very true, that they wanted some proof of this claim. Verse 23. Jesus said to them, Surely, I know what you're thinking. I know what you want. Surely you're going to quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. So do a miracle to show us that you're the one that you say you are. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. There was news about how Jesus had done a bunch of miracles in Capernaum. And, and so what they wanted was to Jesus to do some miracles for them, to, to kind of back up, so to speak, what he was saying. Jesus says, truly I tell you, no prophet's accepted in his hometown. And then he goes on with some interesting comparisons that I'm going to um, explain when we're done. He says, I, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. This is an Old Testament uh, account about a prophet named Elijah. When the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. So there was a, a lot of widows in Israel where you live that needed help. Yet Elijah wasn't sent to them, but to a widow that wasn't in Israel in a town called Zarephath in the region of Sidon. You know about that, right? He's saying. And let me give you another example. There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, a prophet that came after Elijah. Yet none one of them was cleansed, and only Naaman the Syrian was cleansed. And Jesus is, is 
kind of smoking out for them another thought that they had about the coming Messiah, and that was that he was coming primarily and or even only for the Jewish nation, for the people of Israel. And so Jesus points out, you know what? This is what you're thinking. God, even in the Old Testament, wasn't doing that all the time. He, he loves all people, and the coming Messiah is going to be for the entire, entire world. Now, as he decides not to do miracles and to point out that God is for much more than just for Israel and, and kind of smoke out their racism, verse 28 happens. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Now, I remember as a kid going through this in Sunday school and thinking like, wow, that was a shift. I mean, just 10 minutes earlier or an hour earlier, they were speaking well of him. Like, this doesn't mesh. This doesn't even make sense. Were these two things supposed to go together, okay? They got up. They were so mad that they drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Great preacher, let's throw him off a cliff, all right? Something happened that made them so angry they wanted nothing to do with Jesus, in fact, willing to kill him. This section ends, verse 30, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. What happened? Does this make any sense? (laughs) No, I don't know, maybe not. Let me help you understand. What happened, I, I can't even know exactly what was going through all their hearts and all, everything that was going through their minds. But, but here's at the, the heart of it, here's what it was. That they came to the Sabbath day and to the homecoming of Jesus with expectations about what their relationship with Jesus meant and what love would look like in their case and for them when it came to knowing Jesus. And when they found out that what they had expected was not what Jesus was going to do, they got so angry. And they got mad at Jesus because that relationship did not live up to what they had hoped. Now, I don't think I would have been one of those throwing Jesus off the cliff. But what I do know is I can relate to being upset when expectations of what should happen in my relationship with Jesus don't happen. And I'm guessing you can see a little bit of yourself in the people of Nazareth as well. And, and, and for a moment, let me just, you know, give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, okay? Here's why. Let's go back to the words that Jesus read from Isaiah. I mean, these are the words. The Spirit of the Lord will be on the Savior, on the Messiah. He's anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. What what do you think the easiest understanding of good news to the poor would be? That you may not have a lot of money, but I've got good news. You're now rich, all right? You just won the lottery, so to speak. And he sent me the coming Messiah, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Do you know what that meant in the context of these Jews that day? We are under the rule of the Romans. The Messiah is going to come in his power 
to give us our freedom back. He's going to be all about the Jewish nation, all about the Jewish nation. Jesus is like, no, the Messiah is not all about the Jewish nation. We looked at that. And he's going to re- give reco- recovery of sight for the blind. He's going to do miracles. That He's going to be all about healing and making life on earth better. In fact, he's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's going to be like utopia on earth when the Messiah gets here. And to be a Jew is going to be awesome because we have a relationship with Jesus. And quickly they find out, nope. And centuries, not just these people from Nazareth, centuries of, of like anticipation for these types of things that I explained were dashed in that moment. But here's the question I want you to consider. It's our next fill-in. What if, what if what Jesus was working for was different than what they were looking for? What if what Jesus was working for when he came to this earth was different than what he, they, or us were looking for. But Ben, you just read the verses from Isaiah. I mean, it sounded like he's supposed to bring all these things. Well, there's a bunch of passages that I could have picked to help you better understand what Isaiah was talking about. And because I didn't want my sermon to be longer than it is, I just picked one to help you get a flavor for how the Bible speaks. Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to how Paul writes about what God is doing. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. You see, there's a biblical richness that has nothing to do with your bank account or what's in your pocket. And and it talks about the riches of God in the sense of his love here or the riches that he gives to his people that has nothing to do with this life but has to do for eternity. God who is rich in mercy and gives us of his riches made us alive with Christ. You see, there's a freedom that has nothing to do with the Romans but has to do with being free for eternity, to be alive for eternity and that that... (laughs) Hope of heaven makes a difference and and gives us new life here on earth too, even though at one time we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And and you have to understand what Isaiah was writing about, about the Messiah, he uses human words, or should I say human pictures, to describe the spiritual blessings that the Messiah, that Jesus, was going to be all about. Here's the thing. What if what? Jesus was working for was different than what those people from Nazareth were looking for. If they understood that, I bet they would not have tried to throw him off a cliff if they had really understood what the Messiah was coming for. Because he would have met their expectations. What if for us, if what we've been looking for Jesus to do, our expectations of his love, what if our expectations are different than what the ultimately he came to do for us, the main thing he came to do for us. Will that change? Can that change our understanding and our, I guess, appreciation for God? Absolutely. You know, that last verse, Jesus um, decides to kind of walk right through the people. Today, that day was not the day he was going to die. You know Why? Because he was here for a bigger purpose than had been accomplished at that point. Three years later, 
There's a smaller group of people, more than likely, or at least similar size, who now wants to kill him. And they do. Because all of a sudden, Jesus, you know, almighty power, ran out. Oh, man, you guys got me. Kryptonite or something. You know, crosses his kryptonite. No. It's because that was the work that he had come to do. As maybe you've heard, it wasn't the nails that held Jesus on the cross. It was his love for you and his purpose and plan for being here that held him on the cross. He chose the cross because that is what he had come to do. And the blessings of the cross are the ones that he had come to give. To feel disappointed in God, I get it. I've been there. It's common sense. It's logical. But what's uncommon that I want to share with you today is that we don't need to be there. We don't need to feel that way. Because what Jesus tried to teach those people from Nazareth was that he was there not just to put on a miracle show. He had come not just to be the helper of the Jewish nation. He had come to be the savior of the entire world. And that's exactly what he did. So how do we apply this? As always, I want to give you a a take-home. Because the truth is that for most of you, I haven't told you anything brand new. For many of you, you know that Jesus' main purpose was the cross. So you you just need to change your thinking. And you need to remember that. You see, we, we all look at life through different lenses. When you're a kid, you look at life through the kid lens. When you're a parent, you look at life differently, and you look at it through a parent lens, and they're very different lenses. We look at life through the lens of whatever team we cheer for or whatever political party, or none of them that we align ourselves with. or we, we look at life through all these different types of lenses. My question for you is, as you apply what you already knew, many of you, what lens are you looking at life through? Are you going to allow yourself to look through the lens of circumstance to help you believe who God is, or what God's all about? Because if you look through the life of circumstance to get a feel for God, it's going to be like this, up and down and up and down. And when things are going good, God must be happy. When things are bad, God must not care. How about this? Last fill-in. Instead of allowing the circumstances of life to determine what you believe about God, what if we would mental shift uncommon sense Allow God and what we know about him to determine what you believe about the circumstances of life. If we just mentally did this, if you cut this out of the the sermon notes and just put it on your fridge and just, just when things seem to be out of control and you're wondering, if you would just go back to this and who God is, he is all powerful. He has a plan. He loves you and he cares most about your eternity, 
I guarantee you that you will have a better peace about the circumstances of life. Will all your problems go away? Will you never have questions? No, you still will. But there will be a peace that otherwise you would not have. A peace that doesn't come from (laughs) some sort of a saying you heard at church, but a peace that comes from the reality of who God is and the Holy Spirit's work through that. So change our lens. Understand why Jesus came. Change how we're looking at life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for your willingness to send your son to this earth. And even before he died for us, he was teaching us and teaching the people he was around about why he was really here. Lord, if, if I had to choose for you to take care of my eternity or just today, I would choose eternity every time. Thank you for choosing what I needed most and pray that that love is felt in every person's um, heart and mind as they consider you today and your work in their life. We pray this in Jesus' name and also pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. At this time, um, our ushers will be gathering um, our week.